Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Jen McGowan is an award-winning film director based in Los Angeles, California. Her feature film, Kelly and Cal, which starred Juliette Lewis and Sybil Shepard, premiered at South by Southwest and won the Game Changer Award. Her most recent feature film was a survival thriller, Rust Creek, and it was hailed as, quote, the feminist horror Hollywood needs right now by Harper's Bazaar. Take the Lead Foundation named Jen as one of the 50 women who will change the world in media and entertainment, and We for She selected her for the 2019 Direct Her program. She is also a film independent fellow, finalist for the Clint Eastwood Filmmakers Award, recipient of the Alliance of Women Directors Breakout Award for Excellence in Directing, and she was named one of Vulture's Women Directors Hollywood Should Be Hiring. Jen McGowan is also the creator of Glass Elevator, an international skill sharing, networking, and jobs resource for professional women in film and television. With over 4,000 members, Glass Elevator was named Best in LA by LA Weekly and was featured in Forbes. So in other words, total slacker, Jen. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast. I'm so excited to have you with us today. This is a first for us. We've done 39 episodes so far, and this is the 40th, and it will be our first time interviewing a woman filmmaker. Amazing. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. I saw in your bio that you graduated from NYU's Tisch School of Arts and that you trained at the Atlantic Theater Company where you worked with David Mamet, William H. Macy, and Sam Shepard. What was it like working with so many legendary film professionals at such a young age? It was very, very fortunate and amazing. And I just had the time of my life. It was it was fantastic. And I learned things that at the time I thought I was going to apply to acting, but actually are what make me the director that I am today. Yeah. Did you, do you come from a family of filmmakers? No, no, not at all. Most of my family has no idea what I do. My mom's a nurse and my dad worked for the government when I was growing up and he's retired now. Can I ask where you're from? Uh, Yeah. Northern Virginia, right outside of DC. Oh, okay. Got it. Oh, okay. Now I'm getting the Riot Girls reference. I saw your, your new movie has Juliette Lewis and she plays a former Riot Girl. Yeah, that was very big in the 90s in D.C. Yes. I went to American University for a little while. Oh, amazing. That must have been wonderful. Oh, yeah. I loved it. I got into that whole world of like Riot Girl. So when I saw your movie had Juliette Lewis as a former Riot Girl, I was like, I absolutely need to see this. (laughs) Well, when did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker? When did that whole idea get into your head? Not really until I got out of college. You know, I went to college not because I had anything specific in mind, but because I was good at acting. So I thought, oh, I'll go for that. And I loved it. I enjoyed being there. It was fantastic. But when I got out, I was like, I don't really enjoy the life and the career of an actor. This isn't isn't for me. I need to be more 
active. And, you know, this was before like when everybody had a camera in their pocket in their iPhone. So it wasn't as easy then to just, you know, make your own work, which is what a lot of actors do now. And I think it's fantastic. You know, had I come out of school now, I, I, I might not be a filmmaker. But at the time, I was very frustrated of, of, you know, how long it took to get roles. And when you got roles, there were roles that they just weren't terribly interesting. I probably should have been thinking more about the long arc of that and why those things were important, but I was just too impatient. And I wanted to make my own work. So that's what I did. And when I, I made my first short film, that's when I just knew. That was like my Goldilocks moment. That's when I knew what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And you were still in school when you made that film? No, I got out of school. After I graduated NYU, I got a job as a receptionist at a commercial production company. And that was really the first exposure I had to people making film and television. You know, because I was in the theater department at NYU, I saw some people making films, but we didn't really cross over. I didn't think it had anything to do with me. And then when I got out of school, I was like, oh, this is great. This is like, I can do this. I like things that are, you're creative, you're making things. I, you know, I was always a kid that was playing in the dirt and making castles and, and bossing everybody around. So directing is perfect for me. So did you have this idea that you wanted to tell a certain story or you wanted to bring a certain message to the public? Or was it just more about you had all this creativity and you needed to let it out? For me, it's more about process. I enjoy the process of making things and I enjoy the process of making film. It's not about one specific message or perspective. Of course, I'm going to have a perspective because I'm one specific individual coming from a particular point of view, but I'm not a writer. I'm not trying to get my personal experience out in front of an audience. It's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in entertaining people. And I enjoy the puzzle of filmmaking. It's stimulating. It's fun. It's challenging. And I'm pretty good at it. So your parents, you, you said your mom was a nurse and your dad worked for the government. Did What did they think about this? Was this completely new to them? Did they encourage you? My parents were like, look, as long as you can pay your rent and feed yourself, great. Um, so, you know, I don't know if it was generational or what, but in my family, like you graduate high school, you're out of the house. So, you know, that's that was just the expected thing. It didn't matter to them whether I went to college or didn't go to college. It was just, you know, you're an adult now. Take care of yourself. And I did that. Well, in a way, that's probably good because no one said to you, you can't do this. This is not a good idea or it's going to be too hard to make it in this field. Yeah, nobody knew. <laughs> nobody knew to tell me that. But honestly, if they had, I probably would have, you know, said, well, then I'm definitely doing it. Well, at that early stage in your career, this was... I guess the late 90s, early 2000s when you were first getting started, right? Yeah. Okay. So what was the climate like for women who wanted to do filmmaking and directing as women? Well, here's the thing. I don't really know because I wasn't really in the industry. You know, I was trying to get into the industry and I don't know what I faced that was because I was a woman. I don't know any of those things. I know that I worked my way up as a production assistant. You know, I, so I worked as a receptionist, then I worked as a production assistant, a coordinator. So I worked my way up through production. Now, it's traditionally one of the roles that women are kind of accepted in. You know, there's there's vanities, which is hair, makeup, wardrobe, and there's production and there's script supervision. Those are kind of traditionally the roles that women are 
accepted in. So I don't know, maybe I went that route because that's all I could get. I have no idea. You know, I just did what I could do at the time and had my end goal in mind and took advantage of whatever opportunity as best as I could and formed that into where I was trying to get to. I will say, though, that as I worked in commercials, see, I I worked in commercials. That was kind of my day job while I was building my career as a director. I, in 20 years, worked with only three women directors. And two of them were one-offs, never to be seen again. And one of them is a very famous, prolific director named Peggy Serrata. She's amazing. I never worked with a female DP. That's a cinematographer. I never worked with a female sound engineer, a first AD. That's the person that runs the set. And oddly, I didn't realize it until I was, you know, trying to be a director, which is where I was first trying to do something that wasn't traditionally open to women. Recently, traditionally, actually, because the beginning of the industry started with women directors. As frequently happens, women are permitted to do something at the beginning. You know, for example, VR and AR is very big for women now. And then as soon as it starts making money or as soon as it starts having cultural influence, we get pushed out. Interesting. So the film industry at the beginning had women directors, but that stopped? Yeah. Well, can you give an example of that? Yeah. So actually the first narrative film director, which means fiction, not documentary, was a woman. Her name was Alex Guy Blanche. And if people want to learn about her, she's amazing. And there's a wonderful documentary out about her right now called Be Natural, The Untold Story of Alex Guy Blanche. And it's fantastic. It's a fantastic film, regardless of whether you're interested in film or not. But yeah, film started with women directors. What, so what year was this about? Late 1800s. So uh, 1896, she made a short film called The Cabbage Fairy. And that was, I believe, considered the first narrative film. This sounds like a Hazard Girls Facebook group watch party. I highly recommend it. Like I said, it's a great movie, whether you're interested in her film or not. But, you know, what I have learned, and unfortunately, because we don't teach this in schools, it takes your life to learn these things. Yeah. My experience is where there is money, power, or influence, we are not welcome. Yeah, I hear you. And well, the Me Too movement, of course, has changed things in the workplace for women, usually for better, although I can think of other examples where it hasn't. But Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when I think of the height of the Me Too movement, I think of, you know, Harvey Weinstein. The one that really gets me is Louis C.K., the comedian. And these are really extreme examples, but they're from your industry. Why is that? Why do you think the film industry was such a major factor in this movement? I think these issues exist in our industry because it's a highly competitive industry. It's highly glamorized, you know, so dirty laundry is kind of kept inside the family, inside the industry. There's a lot of money and power involved. And why it ended up being influential is why there's a lot of money and power involved. There's celebrity involved. And I think it's great when that's used to affect women who are not celebrities And I I hope that that was the case, you know, but the Me Too movement didn't start in Hollywood. It started with uh, activist Tarana Burke. And, you know, that kind of shows like, why does it have to be a wealthy, famous white lady to bring attention to something, you know, and that's when, when there's other issues at play as well. So true. Have you seen any changes or improvements in your industry since 
the onset of really the popularization, I guess, of the movement? Yeah, you know, I have. I have seen, first of all, I'm working constantly, which I believe is is a positive change, not for me personally, but in terms of, you know, women were not working for a long time. So I think it raises it raises the question in people's minds, you know, when they see a director's list, you know, if you were hiring a director, someone would present you with a list of directors to choose from that are appropriate for your project. Now, when it's only men, people notice that, you know, a couple of years ago, it, it, it wasn't even noticed. It's like the air you breathe. You don't notice the air you breathe. Yeah. I, you know, it's so true. I was thinking that you know, when I was thinking about what questions I was going to ask you, it got me thinking about my own experience in that time period, like the 90s, 2000s. And it's not like these things weren't happening. It's just that it wasn't, it's like no one really cared to acknowledge and change it. Oh, oh my goodness. I mean, look at the movies we used to watch. It was like date rape central. And that was, you know, presented as a normal teenage courtship. So right. Like, now these so, things I would never show my children. Totally messed up. Not, consent was like, what? Thankfully, it's a thing now. That's a good thing. Yeah. So yes, things are changing. I think they're th- changing for the better. I hope they change permanently that I'm very curious to see, you know, my industry is very trendy. So we'll see if it lasts. Has the pandemic affected it? Well, I'll tell you how it has affected women. First of all, one of the things that's really happened in the last few years is, for example, shadowing programs that help women filmmakers and writers, directors get into television, which is where a lot of the money is. In the past, you know, they were kind of these like nice PR things for the studios and the network to look like, you know, they're helping the ladies, but they didn't really have anything of consequence. You know, nothing really resulted in them, which is something that irritates me. I think, uh, you know, it's not my job to fix the shitty system that screws me. It's everybody else's job (laughs) who benefits from it. But now, you know, they have these great programs. They're called shadow programs where someone will go and, and follow a director. You can't do that during COVID. So that's unfortunate. Also during COVID, there is a lot of money that is being spent to keep cast and crews safe. Our industry was one of the first industries that went back to work. And we have, in my opinion, some of the best protocols. They are a huge pain in the ass. They are very time consuming and they are very expensive, but we're doing them. Unfortunately, that means nobody's taking, you know, chances on new filmmakers right now. Oh, so everyone's using people that they know that they have a good reputation for being professional and they can trust them. So they're not giving new people a chance. Yeah. And unfortunately, with with every element, you know, female, a person of color, gay, like each th- each one of those is a perceived risk that has to be unfortunately mitigated. And right now people are not very risk friendly. And, and truthfully, Hollywood is a very conservative industry. A lot of people outside the business don't realize this. It's a very fiscally conservative industry. Why are these groups of people perceived as a risk by the industry? Because they're not standard. The industry is afraid that the audiences won't respond? There are a number of reasons that are given. In my opinion, I think it's really just about comfort level. It's about comfort and ease. And frankly, it's it's a bit of laziness. You know, it's it's a lot easier to hire the dude that you just worked with than to meet somebody new. Laziness is a huge problem. 
Exactly. When 90% of the industry is white dudes, who, who are you, you know, who's easiest to hire? Yeah. When my kids ask me about why are the same stereotypes used constantly in everything that they see, that's, that's exactly what I say. It's laziness. Oh, it's total laziness. Absolutely. And, and you'll see that it's interesting now as people are trying to attack big issues, you know, like racism and sexism and inequality and financial backgrounds. The filmmaker has to be adept at using the language in order to be able to tackle those issues. You know, just because I am a, a woman in the film industry doesn't necessarily mean I'm skilled enough to be able to approach that issue with any sort of nuance or, you know, sensitivity. No, I don't mean to get off on a tangent, but are there professionals that filmmakers hire to help them with that? You know, that's interesting. I think that's one of the things that has changed recently. I have noticed people are hiring cultural consultants. For example, if they're doing a story about someone of which they are not the group. For example, I'll see people reading scripts and giving notes like, oh, hey, you know, did you realize that the women in this script are only described by their physical appearance? Things like that. Because a lot of times, like I said earlier, you don't, you can't see the air you breathe. And if that's what you've been breathing in this industry for 20 or 30 years, sometimes you need someone else to point it out to you. Yeah. I mean, and that just goes back to the problem of we, there just needs to be representation like across the board in these industries, not just filmmaking. Right. I speak to women and various, you know, male dominated industries. And well, I think it's also important that in our education system, we teach kids how to see things. We need to teach kids to see when there are structural systemic imbalances and how to properly break that apart and assess it rather than just accept everything is as it is. Yeah. So true. Have you seen a backlash from I guess the Me Too movement in your industry, like I know in some industries, people say that maybe some men are less inclined to want to mentor them because they're concerned about being accused of something. So mentoring has been put on a more professional level now where it's more monitored. Have you had any issues like that in your industry? You know, it's funny. I have heard that. And I kind of think, look, if you're if you are concerned about not being accused of sexual harassment, maybe you should consider your behavior, um, <laughs> not who you're mentoring. If your mentorship before was so unprofessional that you somehow need to upgrade to a professional status, maybe you should be thanking everyone. So, look, there's always a backlash and there's always people that like to say alternative perspectives just to be difficult. But I personally think that hiring diversely is a financial benefit. Once you get over the laziness factor of having to find people, you know, of doing your job and actually seeking out the best people for the job and not just the closest white guy, your product, whatever that is, will improve. Not to mention your life experience. I mean, aren't you, aren't people interested in other people's life experiences? Why do we only want to talk to people who look and think and, you know, whatever, exactly just like us? Well, let's talk about what you're doing to help with this issue. So after having achieved very high levels of success in your industry as a major film director, you decided to start your own organization, Film Powered, which later became Glass Elevator. And I read a quote from you that said, I wanted to get to know more women so I could hire more women. 
And I think we've just talked about, you know, why that's so important. Do you think it's important that women in general hire other women that, or just, is it really just so everyone can hire more women? It's so everyone can hire more women. First of all, we can't only rely on the people who are being disenfranchised to solve that disenfranchisement because they're not the dominant thought and they're not in a dominant number wise. So if we're only relying on women to solve sexism and people of color to solve racism, it will never change. It will never change. So it's for everyone to hire everyone. And I do want to say <laughs> that introduction was very generous. By Hollywood standards, I am not an incredibly successful director. And I bring that up because, you know, when I started Film Powered, that was five years ago, which was when I was an even less successful director. And my point is that you can do anything at any point. You can contribute to changing the world in the way you want to change it in the way you want it to be before you think you have any power to do it. That's really interesting. So you're saying that we should be encouraged to really take initiative and change systems no matter what level. Absolutely. Everybody has seen a program or a, a fund that starts top down that has is so detached from real people's experience that it ends up not being effective right? And that's not for a lack of good intention. Sometimes you need people to start things at the bottom. What kind of women are members of Glass Elevator? Who's welcome into that group? It started as Film Powered. We changed the name a couple of years ago to Glass Elevator. It's the same thing. It's just kind of upgraded and, and evolved. At the moment, we have over 5,000 women who are all vetted. Wow. It's around the world. You're growing quickly. Yes. Mostly in Los Angeles, because that's where I started. But what it does is once a member is admitted, it's all free. It's peer-to-peer classes, social events, and jobs. And it does two things. It gets women to meet one another, which is essential for hiring. In my experience, I do not hire someone I have not met in person, ever. So it gets women to connect with one another. And it builds relationships with people who maybe you wouldn't reach out to, might not be in your circle. And is that everyone from PAs up to directors? It is. Yeah. PAs, directors, executives, lawyers, uh, film distributors, and critics, everyone. And that's important to me because I belong to a lot of great women in film organizations. Some of them are only for directors. And I'm like, well, that's great to sit around and bitch about things, but I don't work with other directors. (laughs) You know, I need to meet producers. I need to meet writers. I need to meet financiers. That's the great thing about the film industry. You cannot do it alone. You cannot. And what that means is everybody needs somebody else. Somebody needs you. Can you share any stories of how Glass Elevator has helped women? Well, for example, I know an editor was hired at $5,000 a week and has been working in that job for over a year. I know that class-wise, we've held something like 300 classes or events that have been attended by, I think, 4,000 people. There have been mixers and events that, you know, people have built friendships, built production companies, made, made films out of. It's a very kind of organic thing. And that's what I feel is important. You have to build these relationships organically. And it's very important to me that no one is being judged on the quality of their work. They're only being judged on their 
you know, kind of level of experience and professionalism because something that I don't like might be wildly successful. I don't want to be judging someone else's stuff. What are the plans for Glass Elevator? Where do you see the organization going? I'm not sure. It's something that takes up a lot of time and a lot of money. Well, actually, no, honestly, it's not that much money. It's, uh, you know, because I designed it in a way it's pretty much all automated. But I don't know. Look, I would really love to get a dedicated staff member and I would love to open it up. I also think it's really applicable in other industries for building these relationships because business is about relationships. Life is about relationships. So you need to know these people so that when you have an opportunity to hire the first person you think of and the best person you think of is a woman. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. And that's why these professional organizations are so important. They're very important. And, you know, I, I think a lot of times this this framing of like networking, it feels so, I don't know, it is stressful and obligatory. And But I really just see it as like, it's not networking. It's just go make some friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially people in your own industry. You have so much to talk about with them, so much in common. Oh, totally. Totally. And luckily for me, you know, I'm in an industry where pretty much everybody loves what they do. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So it's always fun. I hear that a lot about STEM fields. And I I do consider filmmaking a STEM field. Yeah. I mean, look, it's very mentally stimulating, which I think that's great for work. I don't know what else you could ask for, for being paid to do something, to actually be not bored by it. Fantastic. Your recent film, Rust Creek, which Harper's Bazaar magazine called the feminist horror Hollywood needs right now. When I think of horror movies, I mean, I think of glorifying violence against women. So I would love to know, I haven't seen the film yet. Uh, What is a feminist horror film? Well, that's interesting because I agree. And I I read a lot of scripts and because I'm doing now what we call genre movies, which is thriller, horror, action. I read a lot of male perspective genre movies, which tend to be a lot of violence against women. And I'm like, that's great. Not for me, not for me, not for me, not for me. And when I read this script, I think it's notable that I connected with it because it was written by a woman or rather, you know, that, that is why I connected with it. The story is about a young woman who is going home for Thanksgiving vacation from college And instead of going home for vacation, she ends up taking a job interview in Washington, D.C. And she has to drive through Appalachia and her car has difficulty and it just goes crazy. For me, that's the plot. But what it was about is it was about a young woman who thought all she had to do to build a life was get a job and an apartment. But really, she needed to take down the whole system. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that's a feminist perspective. And you'd really have to see it. I mean, there are moments in the film. Here's an example. And I'm kind of going to spoil it a bit. But there is a moment in the film where it's incredibly tense. And the lead woman is approached by two nasty guys. And she fights. There's a physical fight. I had so many people say to me after the movie, I'm so glad she fought before she was raped. So what that tells me is our cinema, our visual language teaches women, they're not to fight back until after they're physically violated. And it's so common 
that we expect that when we watch the movie to the point where they were shocked that that wasn't what the movie did. Oh, interesting. So that was something that was unique. And that's why they felt they had to point it out that that is not common. Yes. And the fact that that is unique is pretty freaking horrifying. It is. Wow. Well, what's your next project, Jen? What are you working on now? I'm working on a zombie movie. <laughs> oh my god! Oh. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> I know, but I'll tell you what—it's a feminist zombie movie. I promise. <laughs> no way! <laughs> it is. It is. You know, and that's the thing. Like when you let people come into a space they haven't been permitted before, uh-huh. things start looking different. You know, you said I don't know what a feminist horror looks like. Right. Well, luckily, lots of women are making feminist horror. There's a a movie called Raw, which is amazing. And there's a movie called Hunger, which is amazing. You know, these are other feminist horror movies. It's becoming a genre. I think it kind of started really in the last couple of years. But, you know, there's your movie night. Feminist horror. Sounds like progress. (laughs) (laughs) Look, the thing is, it's important that we have progress in every area. You may not like horror films, but it's important that there's feminist horror films. I may not like basketball, but it's important that the women playing basketball are making the same money as the men. Exactly. And it's important that there's female villains too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I had a a conversation with a young woman at a film festival. She was was probably 10 or 11 and and she asked me, she's like, I- I'm really happy that, you know, women are getting to make movies now because I think they'll be nicer and kinder. What do you think about that? And I was like, well, I'm a filmmaker and my job isn't to be nice and kind. My job is to entertain and my job is to reflect the world that I see in front of me. So some women's movies might, might be nicer and kinder, but some women's movies might be more violent. So that was a little girl that asked you that? Yeah. Well, I love that she was there and I love that she had the opportunity to talk to a female director and see you as a role model. That's amazing. It was great. Well, Jen, where can people find you and what would they have to do to get involved with Glass Elevator? I'm most vocal on Twitter and my Twitter is I am Jen McGee. In terms of Glass Elevator, if you're a professional woman in the film and television or media industries anywhere in the world, please check it out. It is online and on Twitter at www.ourglasselevator.com. And if you're hiring in the film and television or media industries, whether you are a woman or not, you can post jobs there and have access to some incredible pro women in that business. Those are really the two best ways. And, you know, spread the word. If you know someone who is looking for community in that industry, Spread the word. Award-winning film director and founder of Glass Elevator, Jen McGowan. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hazard Girls podcast. The film industry is not always friendly to women, but the work you're doing, showing young filmmakers what can be done as a woman in the film industry. And of course, the work you're doing with Glass Elevator is changing that. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.